So this whole apparent dichotomy that I guess gets sort of created by people who talk about it, like myself and others, uh, between mind identification or that world and the, the sort of world where it's seen through, I suppose. I mean, it's, even that's really a false dichotomy. But it's valuable to point it out for someone who is suffering and resonates with this kind of conversation because, because it's so slippery because that world of mind identification and the tricks of the mind and the subtlety of doubt and how easy it is to identify with doubt and as doubt, because that's so slippery. And so, um, it's very agile actually. Uh, I think it's valuable to talk about it as such, to point out the mechanisms of it, to point out how it seems to grab us, how it seems to hold our attention, how it seems to really bring this, the sense of identification with it, actually. Um, you feel so much like a self when you feel like a self, <laughs> but when that's not happening, it's like, where is that? You know? So even when there's mind identification ongoing, it doesn't mean there's always a sense of self per se. Um, there are certainly times when there's a lot of clarity, presence and so forth. In deep sleep, there's no sense of self, um, but it's it's intermittent. It's intermittency. I don't know if that's a word. It's uh, presence, even intermittently. The presence of that sense of contraction, self doubt, um, is binding enough that even though it's maybe popping up here and there, or especially when you're lost in thought or when you're triggered, um, it keeps the binding pretty strong. So looking at the mechanisms, looking at its sort of tricks, um, that can be valuable. It can be, I think, skillful for a while. Um, and when we talk about an, an initial awakening, Kensho, um, focusing with all of that vigor to, to break through, to uh, know the truth, to stop suffering, to focus that down into a question or one pointed approach or a koan is very skillful because that initial shift really does has, it's a major pattern interrupt. It really breaks the, the sort of constant binding experience of the, of the ego into something that's more, much more fluid, more open, uh, intermittent and, and noticeable. We can actually become aware of it as such. And often that's a big aha moment when we, are able to actually see the mechanism of, of selfing and go, oh my God, that's how I start believing a thought? Like, wow, amazing. Like, who am I without that belief anyway? You know, and drop right back into a sort of presence. Um, so that's important, I think. But what we're talking about in this talk is, as things deepen, um, there, there becomes a sort of, shift over um, from taking reference from the mind continue almost continuously to taking reference from the senses almost continuously and that shift happens a little differently for different people um, but often it, it does sort of culminate maybe it's a different kind of one-pointed approach but it's it's a sort of culmination into that 
bottleneck, like I was describing at the beginning, into the inevitability, the inevitable place, the stopping place, the last place you ever looked, the place that all of the ego structures and identity structures and self structures and mind spaces and distractions, all of that has actually been there to prevent you from looking right at it. Strangely enough, it's like a, it's the ultimate conspiracy theory, right? I don't think there's any evil entity behind it or anything like that. It's mechanistic, but it does sort of propagate that way. Um, the, the identity after identity and stages of uh, development of, as a human being, we, we just pile one identity on another and another and another. And with every level, there's a little bit more sort of repressed material or repressed emotion and different coping mechanisms. Then they start having competing agendas with our internal family dynamics and all. Um, so it gets very complex in there. But all of that really sort of scaffolding built over this, this like, um, the stopping place. And at various levels of that development, you'll run into things, you'll run into experiences that will be, perhaps they were relevant at that level of development, like something like abject fear or even anger, like you'll just hit these barriers, but they're not about the, the stopping place. That's not what they're about. They're just sort of protective. They're again, relevant to maybe a certain stage of development or a certain coping mechanism or whatever. But ultimately we just kind of shed these coping mechanisms, including the very intense emotions and the ideas around those emotions and beliefs around them and beliefs around the, the typical usual fears of being a human being, of not being able to take care of responsibility, of abandoning your family, of losing your health, of growing old, dying, on and on and on. All these very typical normal fears. You'll come into contact with all of those. And as we set those aside and shed them, um, it just becomes a matter of like, okay, what's there left to look at? What is there left to look at? You've looked at the, the fears and the shame and the regret and the emotions and the endless beliefs and identity after identity. Um, then there's something that just says, okay, now it's time to look at what is the source of all that looking? What is it that's created a view in the very subtle uh, aspect of mind to look away from something? Maybe it's not even really trying to look away from it. It's just the way view is formed. It's the way inherent view is formed. It's going to have a dark spot. It's gonna have something that, that's unseen because the view is formed this way. To form an identity or someone who looks out into the world or someone who perceives a world and a life and a outward world, even an inward world, they are formed by a basic view. And there's always gonna be something behind that view perhaps a singularity. I'm just calling it the stopping place. So when you've cast away all of these layers of identity and um, say delusion and illusion and on and on and on, that's the last place to look. What is, what is behind the view? What is behind the fundamental view? What is behind the, the fundamental view of I, I am? 
what 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 could form because by now by this time usually there's a lot of clarity even like non-dual realization maybe where there's just so much clarity it's like as we were talking about yesterday where could a self hide you could, there's nowhere for it to be it's just so obvious right um so so then it's like okay well if there's a view that feels like i what's forming the view what is there left here that can actually create that view what is it created out of and if you look closely, you'll, you'll find yourself turning around and looking right at it. And then you'll be in this stopping place, which doesn't have dimension. It doesn't have, again, it's just not of the cognitive process. It doesn't, um, doesn't have any of the rules of, of uh, what we think about as far as the rules of being a human or a person or alive, or it's not about any of that. Um, in one sense, it's not about anything except for pure contact. There's a, I could say, um, I hesitate a bit to say it, but I could say there's a, there's a tremendous amount of sort of intelligence there, but it's not anything like what we would consider human intelligence or problem-solving intelligence or knowledge as we would talk about. It's nothing like that. It's, um, it's all in the contact with it and the surrender that is the contact. So then all the advice I would have is, once you come into contact, stay in contact. Just stay with it. Let it do the work. Um, I can't tell you how that'll be, because there's no way to tell you how that will be. <laughs> Even if I could describe how it was for me or if someone else described how it was for them or whatever, it still wouldn't be like that for you because it's not really like anything. It's um, so primal. It's so energetic. Uh, so if I could say maybe it would be intense, it might be at times, or part of it might be extremely intense. It might be very disorienting. It might be very peaceful. It doesn't matter what it's like, though, right? I'm just kind of saying, hey, when you come into contact with this uh, and stay there, um, all bets are off. You're okay. It's okay. <laughs> Things will work themselves out, but um, it could be a ride for sure. And as I mentioned a couple of times, the, the only thing that really tries to peel you off of that at this point is, is a sort of doubt, just identifying with a doubt that says, oh, maybe this isn't it, or, and distraction, you know, the, the momentum of distraction. But the doubts are probably the most potent. Um, tendency the mind has, I think because it's so easy to identify with a doubt. This will kill me, this will make me go crazy, this will make me non-functional. When you notice those doubts, just, just set them aside, they're just thoughts. Stay in contact. However that is for you. And uh, a common doubt here would be something like, well, it's easy enough for so-and-so because they have such and such a life, right? 
you know, I'm too busy. I have too much going on. I have kids. I have this, I have that. This has happened with people with kids, people who are single parents, people working a lot, people who don't have time to meditate. Like this happens to anyone it happens to. It's, it's not, um, there's nothing about the, the outward circumstances of your life that's going to prevent it. What's going to prevent it is the inward circumstances of your mind and you're buying into it. Yeah, for instance, I've heard people say things like, um, you know, I had to lay in bed for a month. I was glad I had didn't have to work or something because I was able to do that. But then I look at that and I say, well, other people went through the exact same thing and they had to work. <laughs> they couldn't, they couldn't, they just had to, they had responsibilities and so, so forth. So it's not, it really is not about external circumstances. You don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a renunciate. You don't have to be completely free of work or duties or children or spouses. Um, and also at this stage, it's a very level playing field. It doesn't really matter karmically what happened before. It doesn't even matter how much trauma you've had. This last final barrier, everybody's going to have to go through it. And so it has the same, um, has the same sort of barriers, so to speak, for everybody. But it's also available in the same way to everybody. And it's so intimate, it's so direct that the apparent outside circumstances pale in comparison. It's, it almost feels like, for me, I mean, it really did. It feels like it's just outside the scope of this lifetime, outside the scope of this story of you, even from your birth to the, your death in this physical incarnation. It's just beyond that. That's the energetics of it that you're engaging. So nothing about your story is going to stop it. Um, prevent it. You don't need time or space for this. It's more like you need willingness. And willingness to forego the doubts. To forego the grasping of thoughts and beliefs and you know usually by that by this time you've learned that you you know how it feels to let go of that um, but you have to sort of stay the course for some time often and the stopping place well as i said it can be such a ride um very unpredictable in so many ways um and it, and it can be a huge adjustment. Um, it also delivers the most precious gift possible. You can end there. <laughs>